0: Hello, everyone. Good morning. (laughs) My name is Linnea Gibbs, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Philippians. So please follow along in your Bible or use the screens on either side. I will be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 20 from the New American Standard Bible. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. morning. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. And I want to orient us a little bit before or as we get started. How many of you had some things happen to you uh, this past week or the week before in the last couple of weeks personally in your life? Some harder things. How many of you uh, experienced have experienced some harder things happening in our church this week or last week? How about some hard things in our country? Has anybody felt things this week or the last in our world? I feel a little bit disoriented. Lots of things happening in my life as well. And so the prayer that I've been praying is that I would be able to, uh, not just show up to work, but to worship. And uh, Jared prayed that for me this morning, and that was very powerful. And uh, so I've been uh, sitting back there praying for God to sort of consolidate, uh, sort of reintegrate me again. And so I want to start with that prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I want to thank you for uh, being God in our world, in our lives somehow. Um, you have a plan, and you are good, and you are working. And because of that, you are our hope. And so we are turning to you together today. Uh, we don't want to be in denial about harder things. We also don't want to just see the harder things. So speak to us profoundly and deeply and practically, and help us to experience the God that is alive And committed and loving and working. We are looking to you together now. We open our hearts and our minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are concluding our series today, a series we've called Completely Happy in the book of Philippians. And next week, we are starting a new series we're calling Under the Sun What's the Point? Would you like to know what the point is? Well, hold on. We may get there. What's the point? Today, as we conclude, I want to talk about something close to home. I want to talk about your pattern. Isn't that already so confrontational? Aren't you already squirming a little bit? Your pattern. Do you know that you have one? Do you know that over your lifetime... You've developed a pattern. You haven't just done things, but you do them repeatedly in such a way that if you don't recognize it, other people at least recognize that there is a way you tend to walk. You have a style. You have an approach. You have a habit. It's what Paul in this letter calls a pattern. Uh, as a pastor, uh, if I want to be helpful with somebody, I have to get beyond a, a specific incident that's being presented to me. I have to ask questions. I have to help you search your life and get to a place where, not, where we're not talking about the specific incident anymore, but we're able to talk about the pattern in your life. Because until you get to the pattern, we can't really help you. You can't be helped. Think about this for a second. If you address one incident but your pattern remains untouched, will you repeat some version of that incident again? Yeah, you have a high chance of repeating the pattern because all of the mechanisms, the reactions that comprise you still persist in your life, right? And so if you actually want to not have that incident or some version of that incident happen again, we have to delve broader and deeper and get underneath to the pattern. Breakthroughs in your life always come following the identification of the theme, not just the thing. Yes? It's true. Um, a helpful question to ask when something happens is, Have I seen this before? It's a really powerful question to ask in the midst of something that feels like it's happening to you, where it maybe feels like it's not your fault, you didn't cause it. But the strength of your emotional reaction to that incident is informing you that there is some memory, some uh, trigger that's happening for you. And the reason that trigger is happening is because it's happened before. And so you pause and you ask, what about this feels common, familiar? And if you don't see it, ask somebody else. Hey, um, have you ever seen me react this way before? Powerful question, that is. Have you ever uh, found yourself saying the phrase, you never? How about, It's best friend, you always. What are you trying to communicate uh, when you find yourself with those words on your tongue? You never, you always, I never, I always. You're identifying a pattern, either about yourself or about the other person. You're not literally saying you never or you always, but you are saying, hey, there's a general experience I keep having with you. You've created a feeling in me. Even before you did it, I felt something. I am, whether you like it or not, whether I want to or not, I have a pattern that I'm observing here. You've left an impression on me. You're creating memory. What's your pattern? Where have you seen that before. So that's what I want to talk about today. And uh, I already feel like such a jerk in some ways because this is right there. You know, and I feel uncomfortable thinking about it for myself because it's, it's one of those things that just, it just feels a little bit shaming because people, they see you. We, we think, we like to think that we're sort of getting away with a lot. But people are noting things. (laughs) They're making observations about us. And maybe they miss some part of that specific thing. But you've been around for a while. They have come to know you. And by you, I mean your pattern. Oh, just sorry about this. We're going to get through this, okay? We're going to get there. Just hang on. There's a recent study I was reading on destructive interpersonal patterns. Such a thing exists. And this research shows, if you want to know what study I'm referring to, you'll have to go to my sermon notes folder, okay? And if you don't know where that is, you'll have to subscribe to the loop because there's a link to it in the loop. But as, uh, uh, one of the single most effective ways to injure others and yourself ready, is to emotionally cut people off. Yeah. One of the single most effective ways to injure yourself and others is to cut people off emotionally. In another study uh, out of a local institute called the Gottman Institute, many of us are familiar with the Gottman Institute. They also name this uh, pattern, and they call it stonewalling. It's uh, a subcategory of a larger uh, thing that they call contempt. And here's what uh, these studies show. The reason that it's so destructive is, number one, it breaks trust when you emotionally abandon somebody. Because what you're doing is effective abandonment. There's nothing that breaks trust more than leaving them. In fact, studies show that some, a dad who's abusive is less damaging than a dad who takes off. Can you believe that? Because abuse is at least contact. It's at least present, some version of it. So that's number one. It's effective abandonment. Number two... It hugely affects how people behave the next time around. So that relationship is impacted. Not just uh, that moment, but the whole of the relationship is impacted because it creates emotional and behavioral muscle memory. So if you stonewall somebody, you emotionally cut somebody off, and somehow you get over it, and a a year later, two years later, you're working through another point of conflict, you can't have the same conversation you had two years ago because you fear abandonment. You may not even name it, but you have muscle memory. Emotional muscle memory that causes you to feel tiptoey around that person now because you don't want them to abandon you because that was so traumatic. So if you emotionally cut somebody off and you say sorry, it doesn't make it all better because now they have this feeling they're carrying around. Okay, number three. When you emotionally cut somebody off, Everyone, you and the other person, they miss out on the benefits that can only be had on the other side of staying engaged, connected, and in the process. There is benefit to that relationship, nutrient that that relationship needs, that you can only get if, if, if you stay in the process, you stay at the table, you keep talking, you keep staying engaged. Anything short of that, and you miss out on a vital nutrient that your soul needs and that the relationship needs. That's the way God designed for us to get at those nutrients. You have to dig deep. You're creating a Deep, strong root system when you work through conflict. Imagine the roots of a tree growing slowly but surely, penetrating deep into the reservoirs of the nutrients that it needs. The sun, water, The plant is kind of passive, but the active thing that a tree does is it's growing its root system. That's like working through conflict. That's the hard soil you have to break through to get at the things you need. And you can't get to it. There is no shortcut to these nutrients apart from working through stuff. Are you hearing me? All right, number four. This is the last one. And this is uh, the final kicker here. When you cut emo- people off emotionally, you can't just cut off the parts you don't like. You're shutting the whole main valve. So you can say, I love being intimately connected to you, except when we get into that fight. That I don't want anything to do with. But all the other stuff, that's great. I love actually going on walks with you. I love that. It feeds my soul, but I don't want to talk about this thing. I'm shutting down. You can't do that. You forfeit your ability to draw nutrient and life from that walk if you won't talk through that fight. Because everything else gets shut off and the relationship as a whole begins to change. And it becomes to be defined by your unwillingness to emotionally engage in certain areas. These are hard truths about relationships. And some people tend to create patterns around emotionally cutting people off. It becomes your M.O., your modus operandus. Now, that's an example of a pattern, and I wanted to start with this because I wanted you to see how powerful patterns can be, how meaningful it is. If you are here and, for example, you see in yourself a pattern of being avoidant and cutting people off emotionally... and you see that pattern, and you're able to break that pattern, would it be a good thing in your life? Would it be a positive thing? Would others around you say, hey, that's a better you coming through? So I want to challenge you to recognize that you have patterns. It's not that you set out to create patterns, but by now, you have patterns. And it's really a good thing to be able to identify those patterns because following the identification of a theme or a pattern in your life comes breakthrough. But until you get to the place where you're not talking and arguing around a specific incident anymore, but getting to the pattern, you can't grow. Chapter 3, verse 17 says this, Brethren... Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the what? Pattern you have in us. Paul is not saying, I did this amazing thing. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to replicate that thing that I did. He's not talking about a thing. He's talking about a theme. If you have to learn something from me, Or people like me, don't learn the thing, learn the theme. What do I tend to do? What's my style? Observe that. Learn from that. Not a single act, but a pattern. We all walk, but how do we tend to walk? What is our walking style? In the series, in this series called Completely Happy, uh, the message has been to defocus externalities and defocus changing other people and defocus sort of short-term thinking, but really focus on our own completion. That's what the scriptures call it. God's work of completing us. And happiness is not about us finding happiness out there but it's really about increasing our capacity for joy, our capacity for happiness, because happy people are happy and sad people are sad, right? And when sad things happen to happy people, they tend to bounce back and become happy again. And sad people, when happy things happen, they tend to sink down and become sad again. And so God's focus is not on the things out there, but the things in you. Who you are, changing your pattern. And I think Paul is ending on some sort of indirect uh, way of conveying that uh, one of the uh, um, sort of... uh, um, Uh, summarizing ways to think about joy and happiness is to think about your pattern. And I want to identify two aspects that dominate this pattern that Paul is describing uh, in us, as he puts it. And that is, uh, you have to either have or be a true friend. And second, you have to maintain or take on a learning disposition. Okay? A true friend and a learning disposition. Let me read for us from chapter 2, verse 19 and following. It says this, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, for I have no one else of kindred spirit, that's what I want you to hear here, who will genuinely be concerned, concerned, I want you to hear that too, for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests. And then verse 28, therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. Paul is saying, I want you to recognize the pattern you have seen in me and other people like me where you also see this way of walking, this pattern. Oh, by the way, Timothy is one of these people and I'm sending him to you. Observe the pattern in me, but in him also. He is like me. We're not the same people, but there's a similar pattern to us. The thing I want you to notice here is the great apostle Paul, a superstar uh, who walked uh, our actual earth. He's not a Lone Ranger superstar. He ends every single letter that he's written with a long, boring list of people that he's dependent on. He has lots and lots of friends. He maintains his network. He really believes in his support system. Because Paul understands that the whole superstar deal is a myth. It doesn't exist at all. There is no biography that you can read where somebody is just an amazing person. Every story is quite complex, and it's really a pattern of lots of different kinds of people who are weaved into the fabric of somebody's existence. At every critical moment when somebody was making a heroic decision, they did so through the catalytic help of their friends. They had help. And we see a couple of descriptors here about what constitutes a good friend, a true friend, a real friend, a friend indeed. And that is a friend is concerned about others and not just about himself. That's one of the telling signs of a friend. If you have a quote-unquote friend, but they're concerned mostly or just about their own affairs, they're not a friend in the true sense of the word. Maybe they are a warm body in your life. Maybe they uh, direct some of the pressure off of your own life because you get to focus on their drama. Maybe it's convenient to have somebody like that in your life, but they're not a friend. Because to be a friend to somebody, you're concerned about them, not just about you. You're not just bringing your concerns. You're bringing your concerns about them to them. A friend like this, Paul is saying, brings great joy to Paul. And now he's hoping to send this friend to them, to the church at Philippi. He's saying, Timothy is a true friend. And he brings me so much joy. And I want you to experience this joy too. So I'm sending him to you. That's what Paul is saying here. Um, I want you to know two characters, another, uh, another two characteristics about this uh, true friend, uh, what, somebody, uh, what Paul calls a kindred spirit. Okay, the first we've mentioned, a friend, because he's concerned about your welfare, will always lovingly contradict you. If your friend, so-called friend, is not contradicting you, they're not your friend. They're your fan club. Your friend is a different person. They're not an extension of you. You're not the same person. You don't share opinions and points of view. They bring their own self to the table and they bring to bear on you themselves. Therefore, by definition of them being their own person, they are willing to contradict you. It's what the scriptures call truth in love. Let me simplify these words. If they're just loving, they're not your true friend. Okay, I'm using that in quotes. If they're just truthful, they're not your friend. Okay, they're commenting on things. They're throwing opinions at you, but they're not your friend. But if somebody is truth in love, they're your friend. They love you, and they're bringing truth to you. These two things can't be decoupled in friendship. A friend will not just be truthful. A friend will not just be loving. They will always, always, always be truth in love to you. And here's what I've come to appreciate about this whole truth in love thing. Because we're all broken people, a friend who's truly committed to you and to the truth will always be gentle and loving because they bring their own broken self to the table. And if they want to criticize you, they bring they lead that criticism with a criticism about themselves first, because that's part of the whole truth. It's never just a one-way truth about you. It's about their participation in your life, and they have been imperfect. And they're willing to be truthful about that. I think partial truth, a truth alone, can be very debasing and isolating and disconnecting and shaming. And therefore it's dangerous. But a true friend who practices truth in love. They know how to do the truth in love thing because they're bringing themselves to the table as well. The second thing I want you to see about a true friend, uh, you see, Timothy and Paul, they weren't just friends. They were on mission together. It's the biblical word fellowship. True friends are always in fellowship with you. They're not just connected to you. They're connecting with you towards a purpose. True friendship, and this is maybe the irony of friendship. True friendship is focused On things outside of the friendship itself. You do mission together. Because if you are just inward focused and you're looking just at each other and that defines your relationship, then that relationship it's gonna go unhealthy really, really fast. But if you're looking outward together, that's when the relationship becomes a true friendship, a fellowship. And it has now the power, okay, truth and love and purpose together has the power to form sort of a counterculture to your family of origin, which contribute to creating all these powerful patterns in your life. So here's a um, very vulnerable piece, piece of sharing from me. Um, I... Uh, have had lots of sort of truth and love, purpose-oriented conversations where people are willing to speak the truth to me, but in loving ways. And they did so within the context of working together, of trying to be a true friend in motion. And uh, one truth that, was, that still continues to give to me, but when I think about it, it's still hard, is um, last year, a friend uh, said to me, Peter, would you ever walk up to people and start beating up on them physically? This is the question they asked me. Would you just go up and punch somebody in the face? Would you punch them in the gut? And then when they go down, would you start kicking them? Just painting this picture. And it was kind of an interesting uh, question to start with because I grew up in New York City getting mugged and beat up on. And so... This question became instantly painted for me with images in my mind. I hearkened back in my mind. And I said, no, actually, I have this aversion to violence. Even the thought of, like, something hard, like a knuckle connecting to, like, a soft part, like the face. It just, like, makes me cringe. I don't want to see violence. And then he said, do you think you're ever violent verbally? Now you know I'm a direct person, right? You know this about me by now. Let me be direct. I'm direct. <laughs> I have to live with that. That's my family of origin. And this person put their finger on something and put their finger on it in such a way that I had no escape. I had no sort of recourse but to love and appreciate them for being a true friend to me because they stayed in the relationship. And you know what they did? Knowing me as well as they did, they sent me a link to an Amazon book about nonviolent communication. How did they know I like to read? And how did they know that would be helpful to me? Now, you know me. Some of you have experienced this sort of uh, feeling jostled with me, right? Because like, I can be so direct. That was really painful for me to hear that, but I recognize it as a pattern. Nonviolent communication. It's a thing. We wouldn't physically just go around injuring people, but emotionally, we're rude and we're uncivil, and we talk to each other as if we're driving around in our private cars we're so mean and we're not tracking with other people we don't know where they are we're just bumping into them knocking them down we do this all day long verbally emotionally yet we wouldn't do it physically that was a really powerful pattern that's what a true friend is so a couple of application questions about um, what it means to be a true friend number one When was the last time you were in a truth and love 100% conversation? When was the last time you had this? Okay, my uh, experience is you should be having one of these at least once a month. Once a month, you should be having a really hard conversation that you stay engaged in as a true friend. Number two... Speaking of sort of being in purpose together, who are your partners in crime? Who do you do life with? Who are the friends that you focus on together outside of that friendship? Okay, uh, we're going to blow through this one a little bit. Uh, the second thing we see in Paul uh, is found here, verse twelve and uh, through fourteen. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to, that, uh, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't believe he has arrived. He keeps pressing on in fact he forgets about the things he's already learned and he keeps pressing on to learn more to know more so i think a learning disposition is really important help me uh, i'm going to try to uh, um, get this into your brain somehow uh, with these questions what's the difference between trying versus training When you're trying to do something versus when you're training to do something, what's the difference? What's the difference between success and mastery? And the answer, of course, to both of these is learning. When you're trying, you're trying to just get it done. You're trying to finish. But when you're training... You're just trying to learn. You're trying to grow. It's a completely different attitude and hope that you bring to whatever you're doing. When you're trying to succeed, you're not trying to get better. You're trying to get acclaim. You're trying to get a trophy. You're trying to get recognition. You don't care how you get it done. You just want to succeed. You want the popularity. But when you're trying to achieve mastery, you actually don't care. You don't care what other people think. You're trying to hone your craft. You're trying to get better. You're practicing your love. That's the difference between success and mastery. So some of the best athletes in the world, they don't care what other people think. They don't care about the trophies they get because they're trying to actually achieve mastery. They're focused on their craft rather than other people's opinions of them. They're, in other words, maintaining a learning disposition. And Paul actually says, what's the point of learning? You know, we're not just learning to be learners. That's not a beautiful virtue in life. It's just a means to an end. What's the point of learning? What's the point of growing? And Paul says, actually, for the Christ follower, the point is not learning. But the point is Christ. I want to keep learning through these different disciplines and areas uh, in the world so that I can get to the thing that all knowledge is about, and that's Christ. It's what the book of John calls Logos. It says Jesus Christ is the Logos or the knowledge, the meaning. He's the ultimate body embodiment of truth. And I want to get to that. And Paul is saying, I want to maintain this learning tension in my life. I want to be a forever student until I get to Christ. And so if you're sitting here and you're a non-Christian, that's a question for you. You want to grow as a human being? You want to be a student? You want to be a learner? And I would challenge you and say, why? What's the point? Sure, you master calculus. And then what? And then what? You learn about astronomy. And you discover that Pluto is a planet after all. <laughs> and then what? What's the point of learning? What's the point of growing? So you become a better human being. So what? You're going to die. Why? Why learn? Okay, put on your middle school brain and ask, why? Why go to school? And I want to tell you, it's because ultimately there's meaning in Christ. There's truth, sort of the end of the road. You will arrive when you arrive at Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. But for us on the journey now, it's really important that we maintain our learning disposition. Are you a learner? And so to sum up, Paul is saying if you're willing to be a true friend and if you're willing to be a student, you're creating a pattern in your life that's going to allow you to experience joy. It's such a simple way to think about happiness. I've done a lot of research the whole area of happiness for this sermon series. I read read a couple of books. I read lots of research and articles about what constitutes happiness. And I think these two things really sum up a lot of what's out there. It's about friendship, and it's about being a student. Do you know that if you're going through anything hard in life, if you somehow can find a way to be a student, you almost start feeling happiness again, no matter how hard something is. It's so important not to lose that learning in the moment. Okay, uh, a couple of application questions, and then we'll close. Uh, Name a challenge in your life these days. What's hard for you right now? What's hard? What's going on? Just name it in your mind. Write it down. And in that challenge, how can you shift from trying to training? So trying would be like you're just trying to get it over with. You just want it gone. And training says, no, no, hold on. Hold on. What can I learn here? What's the lesson? Okay, how can you shift from success to mastery? How can you shift from caring about people's opinions in this challenge to honing your craft in this challenge? How can you shift to learning? (sighs) Okay, so that's the end of our series. I want to end the sermon uh, by inviting our uh, mission team to come on up, our high school mission team. Uh, I want to ask you to come on up. This team represents a fellowship, friends on mission together, all in the name of Christ. And in some way, they sort of embody uh, the points of the sermon today. Uh, We have... Uh, coming up, Peter Zachariah, Jonah Andrews, Zach Dutton, Antonio Gill, Zane Jollyrood, Erin Yi, Patricia Pond, Sophie Kuhn, and led by Julia Congden and Brent Strobel. Come on up. Come on up to the full stage. I know, it feels so much better to be one step down. I don't know why, it just is so, but this is the big leagues now up here. Okay? Uh... It's been a uh, rough week uh, for lots of us, Uh, but here these guys are, and uh, July 10 to 15, they're going to Toppenish, Washington on the Yakima Reservation with a group called Mending Wings. And uh, they're in a program called SLAM, S-L-A-M, and it stands for Students Learning About Missions. And they're going to serve the impoverished Native American community through service projects. And they're going to be students and they're going to study missiology itself. Not just do mission, but study about mission, including racial reconciliation and the troubled history we have in our churches and in our country with the Native American community. You guys know we started with conflict, right? You know this, as a nation. Um, So they're going to learn about that. And uh, it's been a um, uh, really sort of hard week for us. And uh, there's ongoing tension between whites and blacks in our country. Uh, It's on the streets. It's in our minds and our hearts and our relationships. And we're uh, challenged to think about people. We're challenged to think about history and systems and symptoms and things that are visible and invisible. There are interests and powers at play. There are emotional dynamics also. And many of us are wondering, can change happen? Is change possible? When and what will it take for our country to get to a better place? To sort of have our history, be history, and not so such a living part of the present. We're asking that question, and as a way to send out our team who are going to be tackling areas of Racial reconciliation and learning about what it means to be intentional and deliberate missionaries in our culture. Uh, I want to pray this prayer that I found uh, that Mother Teresa prayed. It's called the Prayer of Justice that she wrote. And then I want to pray another prayer afterwards uh, that uh, has an anonymous author. Okay, so what I want you to do is this Mother Teresa's prayer, I want you to uh, think about our team here, and I want you to uh, pray the prayer with me, repeat it out loud with me. And then after Mother Teresa's prayer, I want to invite you to close your eyes, and then I'm going to read that other anonymous prayer. And I want you to think about not just our team, but our church and our country, And the various people that you know who are deeply impacted by the events of this week and beyond. All right, here we go. Mother Teresa's prayer of justice. Oh God, we pray for all those in our world who are suffering from injustice. For those who are discriminated against because of their race, color, or religion for those imprisoned for working for the relief of oppression, for those who are hounded for speaking the inconvenient truth, for those tempted to violence as a cry against overwhelming hardship, for those deprived of reasonable health and education, for those suffering from hunger and famine, for those too weak to help themselves, and those who have no one else to help them. For the unemployed who cry out for work but do not find it, we pray for anyone of our acquaintance who is personally (coughs) affected by injustice. Forgive us, Lord, if we unwittingly share in the conditions or in a system that perpetuates injustice. Show us how we can serve your children and make your love practical by washing their feet. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Heavenly Father, the beauty and dignity of human life was the crowning of your creation. You further ennobled, ennobled that life when your Son became one with us in his incarnation. Help us realize the sacredness of human life and to respect it from the moment of of conception until the last moment of death. Give us courage to speak with truth and love and with conviction in defense of life. Help us to extend the gentle hand of mercy and forgiveness to those who do not reverence your gift of life. To all, grant pardon for the times we have failed to be grateful for your precious gift of life or to respect it in others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.